Welcome to the first episode of Shaping Global Markets, presented by DFIN. My name is Natalie Arbor, and I'm thrilled to bring you a series focused on key topics driving the regulatory and financial technology space forward. Every episode, I'll be joined by industry experts who will share their unique perspectives and personal philosophies that have shaped their careers and their vision for the future of the industry. In this episode, we uncover what makes data governance and standardization so critical to addressing your data quality needs. We'll also talk about the best way to spend your lunch hour according to our esteemed guest. I'm pleased to welcome Naveed Asim, Chief Data and Analytics Officer at DFIN. Now let's dive in and learn about AI, machine learning, data, mindfulness, and more. Hi, Naveed. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, thank you for having me here, talking about some of these uh, ideas around data. Yes, thank you so much for being here, Naveed. It's so exciting to have a chance to speak with you. And I'm going to start with just talking a little bit about what you've experienced throughout your career. So what do you think is most critical for companies today in their data governance and standardization efforts? Yeah, so to answer that question, you have to understand uh, why do companies do data governance and standardization. And the main goal around that is um, things like trusted decision making. Uh, So if I'm a company, I'm going to be buying another company or uh, making decisions on mergers and acquisitions. I want to make sure that I'm making decisions based on data that is trustworthy. Uh, The other aspect of that is where you may be giving your data or exchanging it with other trusted partners. In our case, SEC. So when we go to regulatory bodies and we are giving them data on behalf of our customers, our customers trust us with their data and SEC is expecting a level of trust on the data itself as the middleman at that point is making sure that the data is of high quality. So the the most critical component in data governance programs and data standardization is ensuring that the quality of data is fairly high uh, and ensuring that the quality of data stays uh, high throughout the entire program. And is there anything that companies who are just in the beginning stages of addressing their data quality issues that may not have maybe certain skill sets that might be beneficial to them, what can they do as like a first step to start a data governance program? Yeah, so I love that question, uh, mostly because uh, it's also a, a coaching opportunity for me for a lot of companies. So first, you have to understand that data quality problem or the issues with data quality uh, is a pervasive problem. Basically, all the organizations, small, large, they have it. And it, just to quote a few things, so Gartner published an article that said that poor quality of data is costing companies $14 million a year. Uh, and this is per year. And this is not even the complete picture because mm-hmm. this is uh, the companies uh, and they, they know they're losing that much money. There are a lot of companies out there, they don't even know how pervasive data quality problem is. They don't even know how much revenue they're losing. Mm -hmm. So it could be upwards of 50, 60, even 100 millions of dollars per year. So it's a fairly big problem. The other thing I'll quote is Forrester example. They uh, published a research where they said one third of analysts, like data analysts, they spend half of their time just massaging the data, cleaning the data up. So think about it this way. 
if you hire a data analyst and their job is to give you insights on data, they're spending half of their data cleaning up the data. So it's a fairly pervasive problem. Uh, so the first step that I tell companies uh, or any organization is um, if you're going to start on a journey to uh, improve your data quality, you have to first admit that there is a problem with data quality. Um, and once you understand that, then you have to understand how big of a problem that is. Uh, you have to be uh, able to walk into your chief financial officer's office, CFO, and tell them that today, poor data quality is costing you X number of dollars. If you say it's $5 million, uh, and then you have to be able to tell them that if you have an opportunity to reduce that expense by 50% by running a data quality uh, program. So that is the first step is making sure you understand how big of a problem it is. Mm -hmm. And once you understand that, uh, then you basically start working on defining uh, data lifecycle. How is your company collecting data from different sources? Uh, typically, companies uh, may collect data from as much as 13, 14, 15 different data sources. Um, and you have to understand the data lifecycle. How is data being used? How is consumed? How is retired? Uh, and once we understand that entire picture, uh, then you can start understanding where in this flow you have problems. It's kind of like, you know, you're in your kitchen, you open a faucet, water comes out. Um, can you drink that water or should you not drink the water because the quality of water is bad? So before you can answer that question, you have to understand where the water is coming from, where is the source, which pipes is going through. You have to understand different uh, checkpoints and monitor the quality of water. Is it having chemicals that you should not be drinking? So that's the first step is understanding what the problem is and then uh, ensuring that you can understand uh, where the problem exists in your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. uh, while we're talking about that, one other thing I'll do is the first step the companies should be doing is establishing a data governance program. Uh, data uh, governance is not a project. It's a program that runs uh, for uh, a long time. And in that program, you establish roles and duties. Uh, you know who the product owners are, who the product stewards are, uh, data stewards are, and, and what their roles or responsibilities are over different metrics of data. Um, and then you have to be able to monitor that as well. There are essentially you know, seven different uh, dimensions of data quality, you know, uh, accuracy, validity, consistency, timeliness, and so on. Uh, it's their responsibility to ensure that data is following mm -hmm. through and is of higher quality uh, across mm -hmm. all those dimensions. Should the program start before you sort of identified some of those problems that you talked about? You said key is to acknowledge that you have a problem, right? So you go to the CFO and you say, we have this problem. This is how much money we're losing. Mm -hmm. Do you have to start identifying those problems before you develop sort of pieces of that program? That's a great question. Uh, so what my recommendation typically is um, someone who's, you know, head of data or head of one of the uh, departments um, is uh, first documenting how big the problem it is. Once you understand that, that will help you define that program structure. Because uh, in data governance world, um, organizations can have different models that they follow. There's a model called federated. There's, then, uh, there's another model that's a little bit more centralized. Depending on what kind of problem you have, 
and how pervasive the problem is throughout the organization, it will help you figure out what kind of program you want mm -hmm. to establish. So my recommendation is first understand uh, the problem. And once you understand that, then you establish a program. And once you have a program, then understand the entire end-to-end -end data lifecycle. Wonderful. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think that it'll be helpful for a lot of companies that are looking to do that. Yes. And one thing I'll say is, uh, you know, a lot of companies jump into solutions. Mm -hmm. They will say, hey, let's get machine learning in or AI to solve these problems. Um, while those technologies can absolutely help you with those uh, problems, uh, it is not the first step. Uh, okay. You know, uh, this is basically putting a cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. First, you have to understand the problem and then bring in technologies like ML and AI. That makes a lot of sense. And I think right now, since it's so popular to introduce uh, machine learning and AI, it's probably maybe one of the first things that somebody thinks of instead of going through the work and maybe integrating it later. Yep, it's the buzzword-driven industry. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here, um, and I'd like to talk to you about a personal philosophy that you have. Hi. You uh, wrote an article on LinkedIn entitled, always eat alone when possible. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about this philosophy and how you apply it to your work every day. Yes, absolutely. So a couple of years ago when I um, first started my career, I read a book called Never Eat Alone. Um, sorry, uh, all, uh, Never Eat Alone, yeah. So the, the, the book was uh, around the concept of uh, it's very important for you to always network uh, and socialize. Uh, so this concept of, uh, you know, there's a huge value when you're always networking uh, is important, especially when you're starting a new career, uh, you're you know, straight out of college, uh, you want to progress in your career. Um, and I've followed uh, that philosophy for a very long time uh, until I started realizing that uh, what it did to me was I am always on. My brain is always working. I'm always thinking about uh, my career, my job, everything else uh, related to that. Um, and the the side effects of that uh, of basically that mentality was that I wasn't paying attention to myself. Um, for those who know me, I'm uh, a huge introvert. Uh, I am someone who is a I call myself thinker, dreamer. I like to innovate. Uh, at home, I, I do a lot of side projects. Um, and uh, for someone like me, uh, who likes to spend a lot of time, uh, when you're always networking, always uh, doing things with other people, uh, you're not paying attention to your own uh, nurturing. Um, and the side effect of that is uh, those things that you really like, enjoy doing, you will do less of that. Um, so the philosophy that I follow, and that's why I wrote, wrote that article, is uh, it's very imp important to focus on emotional IQ. It's very important to focus on mindfulness and mindfulness of what does your body need, uh, being gentle with yourself, being gentle with others. And the reason why it's very important is when you're doing all that, you bring the best version of yourself um, uh, to work. When you're having lunch with someone, you bring the best version of yourself there. You're uh, doing deep listening. You're understanding who they are, instead of uh, just meeting with them because uh, it's a it's a kind uh, of your to do list. I want to meet with the let's the CIO of a company. Instead of that, you're actually meeting with them. You're getting to know them personally. So I, I'm um, my philosophy is uh, care about yourself, uh, about your mind and body. 
uh, and then bring the best version of yourself out there. Absolutely. I think today and in a time that we are always on, that that's something that people either forget or honestly might not have the time to do is take time for themselves. So it's really important that we keep that in front of us as something that we should make time for and and keep as something that we value very highly. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. So as the risk and compliance industry continues to evolve, how do you see technology and data changing the future of risk and compliance? Yeah. So uh, obviously, since we're in the governance risk and compliance industry, um, I think about that quite a bit. Um, And within the technology uh, department, uh, we look at uh, that uh, basically ask um, as data and technology, what can we do to leverage best of both? Uh, so data, um, exposure of data is nothing new. Uh, IDC uh, wrote a paper that talked about the explosion of data, that by 2025, uh, there will be 175 z- zettabytes of data. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what that is. It's uh, essentially <laughs> uh, you know, 21 zeros. Uh, so that's a lot of data, yeah. right? Um, so there's uh, no denying that we're living in a world where there's a lot of data out there. Uh, and there's also not denying that technology is playing a huge role in how you leverage that data and how you monetize that. Um, so you will see a lot of companies th- uh, that are going to the cloud first, they don't even uh, go and have a data centers. And even the cloud providers, um, there's a lot of uh, war going on between Amazon, AWS, Microsoft, mm-hmm. Azure, and Google, which is helping all of us because they are improving their cloud offering. So from the technology side, there are a lot of uh, interesting and cutting edge technologies out there that are available uh, that companies should be using. Now, in the governance, risk, and compliance industry, if you think about what's important to us, uh, it is uh, basically better and faster speed to market. If you're building a new product, if you are going to be addressing a new regulation that SEC published, uh, SEC comes up with some timelines. Um, It's very important for us, a company like us, to make sure we build a product and uh, bring it to the market as soon as possible. And that's where these cloud technologies help us. It's very easy and quick for us to deploy a new app in a Microsoft Azure uh, using their platform as a service uh, offerings, uh, where they manage the databases for us. They manage where the code runs. Our job is to write a good quality of code and monitor mm-hmm. that. So uh, the trend that we see quite a bit in the uh, risk and compliance Uh, is a lot of companies are moving to the cloud. Uh, And a lot of uh, companies like us, uh, I would consider us uh, leading the pack uh, because our enterprise data warehouse is cloud. It's all, everything is in the cloud. And we had to figure out how to make it secure. We had to make sure that we have the scalability built in. We are able to scale up, scale out our platforms. Um, Because going back to SEC regulation, uh, there, there are certain peaks. So there are times where a lot of companies will file uh, the forms. Then there are times where no one is filing. So using cloud, we are able to scale up and scale out during those peaks mm. uh, where we could have you know, 50, 60 servers running. And when the peak is done, we bring it down to you know, just a few. Uh, and that's where cloud helps us quite a bit. 
So that is the technology trend that I see. Uh, companies like us going to the cloud. Is there anything else that you see from a data perspective that's going to be coming down maybe in five to 10 years, a little bit further out? Yeah, I would say um, one thing that I I think will be coming down or should is um, right now, SEC uh, you know, is asking companies to disclose. Uh, instead of that, uh, SEC is having more, b- better transparency into companies' operations, uh, perhaps using um, application, uh, you know, APIs uh, mm-hmm. to pull data directly on demand. So the concept of having to file may go away, where SEC always has a pulse on how different companies are doing, and they're able to have a, that understanding in real time. Um, because investors, end of the day, uh, they look at SEC to ensure that they are making decisions based on the right data that's published. Uh, however, uh, that data is always delayed because companies, it takes them a while to file. Uh, if SEC has that uh, connectivity into companies, it can give those insights in real time and very timely. And investors will make the investment decisions that are accurate and in that situation, it's win-win for everyone. So do you think that um, the way that that data would be interconnected, is that a cloud-based as well? So the SEC would have all of the information somewhere that's accessible so that companies can just upload their information that way without the formal filing needs that yeah, are right yeah, now? Yeah, so there would be a couple of options. One option is where SEC has some connectivity into companies' operations, uh, which is very difficult because you will have to custom build it for a lot of different companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, ideal scenario would be what you just described. SEC builds a solution where companies don't have to create a form and load it into SEC. What they do is they basically upload their data in raw and perhaps there is some kind of a feature where they can map it to what SEC is looking for. Uh, there is a, a huge uh, conversation going on around IXBRL. I mean, DFIN has solutions around IXBRL as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so what IXBRL does is you're basically tagging your data uh, with certain uh, elements that SEC can understand. So the idea that I think will happen is uh, IXBRL will advance to a point where companies are disclosing information using APIs in real time versus having to create IXBRL and send it to SEC. Mm-hmm. At least that's the yeah. direction we should be going. Oh, interesting. Well, it also seems to bring the conversation full circle, right? The importance of data standardization couldn't be higher if that is where the industry is headed. Exactly. Because yes. otherwise they wouldn't be able to speak to each other. Yep, that's right. So you mentioned a little bit about machine learning as um, sort of a technology that companies can implement and use. I've spoken to you in the past that you also teach a capstone course at Northwestern on AI and machine learning. And I was wondering if you could speak to a little bit as an instructor, are there any discussions that you have in class with your students that yield interesting takeaways that then you can apply at work or that make you think about AI in a different way? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, um, I uh, teach a part of a class at Northwestern University. Uh, It is their um, executive program. It's called uh, MSIT. Um, And the people who are in that class, they come from different backgrounds. Uh, There are people who are programmers. There are people who are data scientists, uh, project managers, and so on. Uh, I love teaching that class 
because although I'm teaching, uh, you know, machine learning AI to them, I'm also based on the questions they ask, I'm learning from them. And what I'm learning from them is their perception of AI. Uh, so machine learning and AI is nothing new. It's been around for many years. Uh, however, if you ask someone who is not very familiar with machine learning AI, they think of that as uh, robots, self-driving cars. So they want to put a face to it. However, uh, machine learning and AI is more than that. There are uh, aspects of it such as natural language generation, natural language processing, things that are being used in Alexa or uh, being used uh, in, to complete your sentences in Gmail. Those are the examples of machine learning AI that a lot of people still don't understand. So what I take away from teaching that class is uh, we need to teach more what AI can do. And only then organizations out there and the leaders can understand the true potential of AI because the conversation of what will we do when AI is here is gone because AI is already here. It's all around us. So the question now is, what can we do with AI to make our life better? Not for our, ourselves, our customers, our company, for everyone around us. And I think that's my biggest takeaway. Have you ever, so I, I know in the, in the media right now, they talk a lot about how machine learning and AI, much to uh, your point about people putting a face to it and thinking it's robots. A lot of the sort of trope is that machine learning and artificial intelligence are taking over people's jobs, which isn't the case. It is, to your point, making our lives easier and better in different ways. How do we combat that? How do we make people understand that it's sort of an aid to what we do and that um, our jobs are safe? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And someone actually asked that question uh, in one of my classes I was oh. teaching. Uh, their question was, what would we do when machines take over and I don't have a job? Uh, so my point to that was, uh, it is not a war of technology versus humankind. Uh, it's essentially technologies out there to aid and support us. Uh, so when, when someone asked me that question, I asked them, can you think of things you do today uh, that are very manual in nature that you wish you could outsource to someone else, uh, someone else doing that for you? If you could think of one thing that is would be a use case for AI. Um, and I asked that question to myself. I can think of you know many things that I do per day that I can outsource to machine learning or AI, and that can help me with that. So I don't think machine learning and AI is going to take over people's jobs per se, but I think what it would do is it will make a, or make our lives more efficient. Uh, it will uh, enable and empower us to do more than what we do today. If I am spending two hours doing those manual, uh, you know, mundane tasks, mm -hmm. if AI can do that for me, guess what? Those are two hours that I can actually do my job better, right? right. And another day. If that's the case, maybe I get to spend more time with my family, my wife and my daughter. So I, I think, you know, machine learning and AI is here not to take over our jobs, but to make our jobs more meaningful to us and make our personal lives more meaningful to us. Oh, that's wonderful. So tell me a little bit about some projects that you're working on that you're excited about right now. Yes. So um, within DFIN, uh, we have a, a data science team that I built. 
Um, and my head of uh, data science, her name is Hunju. She is very extremely talented. Um, so she is leading a couple of different projects. And they're all around natural language processing and natural language generation and deep learning. Uh, so the way we're uh, using those technologies is, uh, A, uh, doing a lot of document analysis. We have a new product that we built. It's called Fun Analyzer. What it does is you bring, uh, you know, shareholder reports, prospectuses, anything. You give us hundreds of those documents. We will use natural language processing, NLP, to analyze all of those documents in bulk and we'll give you a report of how those documents align. A lot of our customers, they manage funds. They want to be able to see how those funds documents are different or similar, and also the concept of roll forward. If you file a report, or if you have a report for a fund, and the next period you want to generate something similar, instead of starting from scratch, uh, you can basically use NLP to generate that report for you. So those are some of the things that we're working on. Uh, another project that I am personally very excited about is uh, a tagging uh, project. I unfortunately can't disclose a whole lot, uh, but it is something that we believe will change our industry quite a bit, uh, where we use deep learning uh, techniques uh, to do tagging of documents. Very exciting. It's nice to hear that we're incorporating some of those newer technologies that everybody is very excited about. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I have just one more question that I, I want to ask you, and it's a favorite of mine. I want to ask you about your phone and your behavior. So is there an app on your phone that you personally enjoy using that might help you do your job better as well? Yes. So I have a couple of apps that I, I love, but one app that I would say I use almost every night is the, the Headspace. Um, it's a app that was recommended to me by my wife. Uh, she uses Headspace quite a bit. Uh, she's a physician. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout the day, she's you know doing surgeries, has a lot of patients. Um, so she would take some time, listen to Headspace, and uh, it kind of brings calms you down. Uh, it's it's almost similar to do meditation. Um, I love that app, uh, and also uh, it's something that I use now almost nightly basis with my daughter. Uh, where we just sit down, lay down, we listen to Andy talk about uh, our day, thinking about things that are making us anxious, anxiety, how to combat that. Um, and one of the things that I started doing recently is they have this whole area about mindful eating. Oh. So I have uh, been on a journey to lose weight. Mm -hmm. uh, I've already lost you know, 40 pounds in the last two, three years. Uh, I've gotten to a point where now I'm focusing more on mindful eating and uh, Headspace helps me with that quite a bit. So interesting. Um, you hear a lot about being mindful and mindfulness in general and just breathing and, and taking account of what your body needs. Um, so using that to with your eating habits seems very, very interesting as well. It is. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts and, and everything that you're working on. Well, thank you for having me here. This is uh, it's always a pleasure talking about uh, data and analytics. Uh, and I'm hoping and looking forward to future sessions. Perhaps we can talk a little bit more about AI. Sounds great. Right. Thanks. Thank you.